I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig into the confusing instructions in scripture to discover the wisdom that's contained within the confusion. The book of Numbers, for many of us, it's a mixed bag. It's either dull to the point of boredom, or it's exciting and instructional, or it's a confusing mess that causes us to scratch our collective heads and say, what? And the great thing about this book is that it can cause us to do all three at once. And it is this that can help us to discern the underlying theme of this book. Because this book is perhaps the best mirror that can be found into the condition of the human heart. Let's consider it. In Genesis, we read a lot of stories, stories that set up the rest of the story. But Genesis, on the surface, has no one central theme beyond that. Is it about judgment? If we look only at the flood and Sodom and the famine in Egypt, then we could conclude this. But there's way more to Genesis than these events. Is it about righteousness? Well, there are plenty of occurrences in Genesis, even among the patriarchs, that are less than righteous, but still used by God. Is it about covenant or promise? Well, we do encounter these things in Genesis, but they are only ever initiated, never fulfilled. If we had to choose a single theme beyond simply beginnings, I would have to say that it would be God turning man's evil into good. This is what the book opens with and what the book closes with. And all of the stories in the middle, they point to that process being carried out over and over again. What about Exodus? In Exodus, we saw the names of God on display. Throughout the book, the thing that unified it from one end to the other was a revelation of who God is. From the plagues to the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, every part of Exodus is about Hashem's name, His character, His nature. Leviticus? Well, we just finished this book, and as we saw, the overarching theme of Leviticus is worship, the hows, the whos, and the whats of the worship of Hashem. So when we encounter the book of Numbers, the underlying theme can be a bit difficult to place. I mean, sure, we could just simply settle on in the wilderness as our answer and leave it a bit vague, just as we tend to do in Genesis. I mean, yes, the book is about Israel's journey in the wilderness, but is that Every part of this book? Is every bit of this book bent towards this end? Preparing for it, living it, and preparing to leave it. And from one perspective, this is extremely accurate. But then we encounter chapters like the one that we're about to begin and the next. And we spot a flaw in letting this be our best understanding of what this book is attempting to explore. 
In the first four chapters, we could see clearly Israel is getting ready to move. The wilderness experience is about to begin, so counting and organization, they're needed. And then, if a woman is suspected of adultery, put her through this trial to discover if she's guilty? And and then the next chapter, oh, by the way, here's a vow that people can take that will place them in a certain category within the community. What do these things have to do with the wilderness journey? And I would submit that they have very little to do with the wilderness experience in and of itself. So, is there a better theme that we can discern from this book? Something that is reflected in every page. Well, if we take our cues from the chiastic structure of the Torah, then we might find something of importance. In this view, the book of Numbers matches the book of Exodus as part of a chiastic pattern. And what was the central theme of the book of Exodus? It's the name of God. His character, his reputation, his authority, his power, his fame, his his name. And alongside this, we find how humans respond to this revelation of God. Well, in Numbers, I think that we find the topic flipped. The book of Numbers contains perhaps the name of man, our character, our reputation, our authority, our power, etc. And we discover in these pages just how broken we are as people, who we should be contrasted with who we actually are. We're a mixed bag of honor and shame, good and evil, life and death, all rolled up together into this conglomerate hodgepodge of actions, thoughts, and emotions called humans. In the book of Numbers, it reflects this. We are honorable and have been entrusted with much, but we are broken and suspicious. We break covenant. We murmur. We complain and rebel. We fail at nearly every turn. That is until we put our trust fully in Hashem and his mission for the earth, the mission that he has called us to walk in. It is not until we can walk in absolute faith in him and his mission that we are ready to face the world. Only then we are ready to bear his name before men without our treacherous nature overriding his glorious nature. But until then, we are a twisted and treacherous lot, fallen, but not forsaken. And it's in this that we find a unified theme for the book of Numbers, the name of man and how Hashem reacts in relationship to us. And that's why we find this hodgepodge of seemingly random, but not really random topics in the book of Numbers, because it is the wilderness that will reveal our nature to us, and it is the wilderness that will cause us to trust him more. So let's open up to Numbers 5 and read one of the more confusing chapters in this book, and then discuss how it reflects our nature as well as his. Numbers chapter 5. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel to send out of the camp every leper, and everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled for a being. Send out both male and female, send them outside the camp, so that they do not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, to send them outside the camp, as Hashem had spoken to Moshe, so the children of Israel did. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, 
When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in trespass against Hashem, and that being is guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall restore his guilt in its principle plus one-fifth of it, and give it to whom he has been guilty. But if the man has no relative to restore the guilt to, the guilt which is restored goes to Hashem, for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which the atonement is made for him, and every contribution of all the set-apart gifts of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest becomes his, and every man's set-apart gifts becomes his, whatever any man gives to the priest becomes his. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man's wife turns aside and has committed a trespass against him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witnesses against her, nor was she caught. And a spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself. Or a spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he has become jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring the offering for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He is not to pour oil on it or put frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing crookedness to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near, and shall make her stand before Hashem. And the priest shall take set apart water in an earthen vessel, and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the dwelling place, and put it into the water. And the priest shall make the woman stand before Hashem, and shall uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy, while the priest holds in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall make her swear, and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have turned aside under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall make the woman swear with the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, Hashem make you a curse and an oath among your people, when Hashem makes your thigh waste away and your belly swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your inward parts, and make your belly swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and shall wipe them off into the bitter water, and shall make the woman drink of the bitter water that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before Hashem, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a hand filled with the offering as its remembrance offering, and burn it on the altar. And afterward make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and has committed a trespass against her husband, that the water that brings a curse shall enter her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh shall waste away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be clear and shall conceive children. This is the Torah of jealousy when a wife turns aside under her husband's authority and defiles herself or when a spirit of jealousy comes upon a man, and he becomes jealous of his wife. Then he shall make the woman stand before Hashem, and the priest shall do to her all this Torah. And the man shall be clear from crookedness, but the woman bear her crookedness. Last week I made a claim of the book of Numbers that might seem to fall apart when we get to this chapter. I said that the book of Numbers is sublime. It presents a story or narrative, and in the course of the narrative, a problem is introduced, and then the book will stop and deal with the problem before moving on to the next narrative. 
Now, so far in the book, we've only encountered a lot of counting and organization going on. Census numbers for the purpose of war, census numbers for the purpose of replacing others, census numbers for the purpose of service. And throughout these counting records, we read of the way that the camp is to be organized, and we read of the responsibility of one particular clan in regards to the tabernacle. And so when we turn to chapter 5 and we read two small asides on uncleanness and restitution and then a, a long set of instructions on how to determine if adultery was committed, it seems so completely out of place. That is, unless we determine the purpose of each of these sections and then compare them to what has just been said. If we do this, then we can perhaps determine the flow of this chapter and the next and where they fit into the overall topics. So let's do that now. In verse 1 through 4, we read the command to expel every person from the camp who is in a state of uncleanness. Those who are lepers, those who have abnormal discharges, and those who have come into close contact with a dead body. And why is this to be done? Well, so that the camp is not defiled, because Hashem dwells in the camp. Now, if we're paying close attention, the flow into this section from the previous should be pretty obvious. We've just spent four chapters going over how the camp of Israel is to be arranged. And in these four verses, we can easily see that they have to do with further instructions for the arrangement of the camp of Israel on their wilderness journeys. No uncleanness is to be allowed into the camp. And if we consider this, there is a lot being commented on in these four verses. God's holiness and how it's to be protected. This is something that we read about in the charge to the Levites. No zur is to be allowed near the tabernacle. And what is a zur? Well, it's literally one who is estranged, a stranger. A stranger can be anyone, even a native-born, who is not associated with Hashem. Ezekiel 14.5 says that he should turn aside the house of Israel according to the hearts that are Zur, estranged from me in their thoughts. In Deuteronomy 32.15-16, So Jacob ate and was filled, and the beloved one kicked. He grew fat, and he became thick and broad. Then he forsook the God that made him, and departed from God his Savior. And he provoked me to anger with Zur, gods, strange gods, with their abominations. They bitterly angered me. Even a native born in Israel can become estranged from God, and it is this class that is forbidden from approaching the tabernacle. And so here we find that even those with uncleanness are in the same category when it comes to dwelling in the camp. They are to be kept outside of the camp, away from God, away from his dwelling place. And this is part of how the camp is to be arranged. The next topic in this chapter is another short aside regarding what is to be done in the case of restitution that is to be paid when a person who is to have restitution paid to them is presumably dead and there's no kinsman redeemer or goel to receive the restitution in his stead. In this case, the restitution is to go to the priests alongside the atonement and the other offerings that were already theirs. Again, the question arises. How does this fit in with anything that's come before? Well, the key to discovering this is found in determining the purpose of this passage. And how do we discover the purpose of this passage? We discover what new information is being given. Is the purpose of this passage to explore the idea of guilt in a person? 
No, that was done already in Leviticus 5 and 6. Is the purpose of this passage to tell of the restitution that's owed in the cases of guilt? No, that's been explored before in Exodus 26 as well as Leviticus 5 and 6. Is the purpose of this passage to explore what happens to the restitution if there's no one to give it to? Yes, partially. But this is simply the open door that's then walked through by the text to get to the main point. I believe that the main point that's being brought out here is found in verses 9 and 10. Every contribution that is brought to Hashem becomes the property of the priest that receives it. Everything that is holy of a man also becomes the property of the priest that it's given to. You see, this chapter had not ended talking about the Levites that were being covered in the last chapter. In chapter 3, we read of all of the Levites, every one of them from one month up. And in that chapter, we read of the responsibility of those on the east to protect the holiness of the tabernacle. Then in chapter 4, the topic of the Levites gets more restrictive. Now only those who serve in the tabernacle in some way are counted and listed. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, we read of a continuation of both of these ideas. The protection of the sanctity of God. It's a job that ultimately falls on the shoulders of the priests. It's a job that would be pretty thankless. I mean, removing the leper, okay, that's understandable. They can potentially spread disease to others, so let's go ahead and remove them out. Removing some of the sick from the camp, that's a little harder to accept. I mean, these people are sick. Shouldn't we care for them? No one's going to catch what they have. But then removing those whose only crime was to come into contact with a dead body? Well, that could cross a line in some minds. Those who had simply paid respects to a deceased family member or friend, suddenly they were being treated the same as a person who had leprosy. Those who had the honor of carrying Joseph's bones through the wilderness, well, they were cast out of the camp. The outrage and the potential backlash for being the one who gave or enforced this order. And then this class the priests whose job it was to enforce these rules, they receive a reward. If restitution was to be made but couldn't, then it was made to them. Not only this, but all of the contributions and the holy things that were given to Hashem, well, they belong to them. In these two sections, the text is describing the duty of the priests as well as the reward of the priests for this extra duty that they had over all else. But these policies... I don't think that these policies would have been popular among the people. There would have been an outrage in certain quarters. Talk of, well, it's my birthright to be a priest. I'm the firstborn. But now a tribe that's the second son of a second son of a third son has now taken my place. And now they get the rewards and the offerings of the people that should have been mine. And then there's this. But mom was just sick. I mean... Yeah, she's had a flow of blood for a time, but now she's being treated like an outcast. I can understand that Hashem would not want her to come into the tabernacle to worship, but kicked out of the camp? Or this. Who are they to kick us out? We were given the honor of bearing our forefather to his resting place. Or, but Bob just died right next to me. I I didn't even know it. Just accidental, and now I have to leave the camp for seven days? Or, 
What, was I supposed to not go to Grandma's funeral? Was I not supposed to mourn her? How can you be kicking me out of the camp for this? You see, these policies would likely be unpopular. They would not sit well with everyone, especially in societies that had come from where you pay honor to your dead ancestors. Things that before were things of honor, they're suddenly being treated the same as things of very obvious shame. Positions that were to be inherited in positions of honor have suddenly been supplanted, and now those who are supposed to be in those positions feel shamed. And so in the opening of this chapter, we see a continuation of what has come before. The arrangement of the camp, the duties of the priest, and the physical rewards of the priests. And these topics then introduce a problem. And that problem is adultery. Or rather, idolatry. And alongside this is jealousy. Misplaced jealousy. And it's one that we will see rear its ugly head in about ten chapters in the form of a rebellion of the firstborn and the family members of Moses and Aaron. But before then, the issue has now been introduced. And so now the topic is to be addressed. But when it's addressed, it's addressed in the realm of marriage. Once again, we find a lot going on in this chapter. Now, for the modern audience, this ritual is one that causes no end of head-wagging. Some in confusion. What's going on here? Some in consternation. Why is it that only the woman is to be tried? Some in disbelief. Just look at how backwards this book is, to think that something like this might actually work. And all of them are right to a degree to a modern mind. The ritual is both confounding and confusing. So let's take a look at some of the historical context of what's occurring in this passage before we move on. In the ancient Near East, it was common for a person who was accused of a crime to be put through what is called a trial by ordeal. The ordeal usually involved water in some way, but not in every trial. Trial by combat was a type of trial by ordeal, but it was only one expression. Now, throughout historical documentation, we read of trials by ordeal being used to test the guilt or innocence of a person. In many cases, this took the form of having hand and feet bound and being thrown into a rushing river. The trial being that if you survived by floating or escaping your bonds, then you were obviously innocent and the gods delivered you from death. On the flip side, if you die, then you were guilty. You deserved death in the first place. In other cases, a person would be burned by boiling water or oil, and if the burn healed or they didn't get burned at all in the first place, then they were innocent. And the list goes on and on. And we see ordeals of this sort used throughout Scripture. The flood of Noah? Well, the innocent, they floated and survived. The wicked and the guilty, well, they drowned. Why did Pharaoh's daughter accept Moses into her home even though she knew he was a son of the Hebrews? Because he, out of all of the children of Israel, had survived the ordeal by water. Or the Red Sea, where Israel passes through the depths unharmed, and Pharaoh and all of his armies are destroyed. In the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah knows that he is guilty. The lots have fallen on him for his guilt, and so he is put through a water trial by being thrown into the sea. And yet Jonah survives. The story, if true, of John the Apostle being boiled in oil before being exiled to the island of Patmos. 
This was likely a trial by ordeal that was initiated as a way for the monarch who had ordered it to appear righteous by putting John's fate in the hands of God. We can even see baptism as a form of trial by water. We go in guilty and we come out innocent, declared righteous and justified by God. Trial by ordeal was extremely popular in the ancient world up until the practice was first outlawed by Pope Innocent III in 1215. Even then, it took some time before these sorts of trials were discontinued completely. So what does this specific trial entail? Well, in verse 14, we discover that the trial is to be gone through for any accusation, whether the accusation is legitimate or not. The woman is brought before the priest in the tabernacle to stand before Hashem, along with an ephah of barley flour without oil or frankincense. Three items are then gathered together. Holy water. Now, what is holy water? Uh, presumably, that is water from the laver that sits in the courtyard. Then there's dust from the tabernacle floor, so let's put some holy dirt in there. And they're all combined in an earthen vessel. Then the woman's head is unbound and her covering is removed. In the ancient Near East, the covering of the head was the symbol of a married woman. Even in some modern cultures, this is the symbol of a married woman. It's a symbol of being under the authority of a husband. It was later turned into a symbol of modesty, but it's just that. It's a cultural symbol that's spoken of in the Bible. It's not a command that's given in the Bible. And so the woman removes her head wrap to signify for the remainder of the trial she is no longer under her husband's authority, but she is now under God's authority. It's also a symbol of what she's being accused of, acting outside of her husband's authority. And it's this that's explicitly called out when the priest approaches the woman for the trial in verses 19 through 20. It says, And the priest shall make her swear and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have turned aside under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, and goes on. So the woman is standing there without her covering, symbolizing what she's being accused of and where she actually stands before God now with the grain offering in her hand. The priest then stands with the bitter water in his hands, as the conditions of the curse are then spoken over the woman. And to this the woman is to respond, Amen, Amen. Uh, simply, truly, truly, or yes, I agree. I agree to the terms of this trial. And the curse is then written on a scroll, and the scroll is washed off into the water. And in this concoction we find holy water, holy dust, and the holy name of God all mixing together, with the terms of a curse. And this is then drunk by the woman. And if this curse is true, then the woman's thigh will waste away and her belly will swell. Now the word used as thigh is one that has a range of meanings. It can mean the place where one puts a sword, that's the outside of the upper leg, Exodus 32:27 and he said to them thus says Hashem Elohim of Israel, each one put on his sword on his side, his thigh. Pass over to and fro and from the gate to gate in the camp, and each one of you kill his brother, and each one his friend, and each one his relative. Or Song of Songs 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O daughter of a noble! The curves of your thighs are like ornaments, the work of craftsmen's hands. But it can also mean the seat of reproductive power, or the origin of one's lineage. Genesis forty six twenty six. 
all the beings who went with Jacob to Mitzrayim, who came from his thigh, his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six beings in all. Or Exodus 1.5, And all those who were descendants of Jacob were seventy beings, as Joseph was already in Mitzrayim. A descendants of Jacob? It's those who came out of his thigh. So in the Hebrew, this is all that came out of the thigh or the loins of Jacob. Now, I find it highly likely that this curse is not a curse of a wasting disease of the thigh, but rather it's a curse of barrenness. May your reproductive power be wasted away. May you be barren the rest of your days. And yet, may your belly swell, not in childbirth, but as a shameful reminder. May she look pregnant, but never be pregnant, seems to be the curse contained here. Constantly reminded of her shame. So this raises the question, why a trial by ordeal? Why does the Bible seem to prescribe this sort of ordeal, giving it legitimacy? Well, let's consider this trial. If the trial is powerless, what happens in this trial to harm the woman? Nothing. Nothing at all. Unlike other trials where the person's life was nearly always on the line, if God did not intervene, in this case, there's no bad outcome if this doesn't work. No innocent person dies if the trial itself was faulty, as were so many other types of trials throughout the ages. Now, some see this as simply God playing up to the expectations of the people. They expected a water trial for the woman suspected of adultery, so he gave them one. I mean, this is certainly better than the Babylonian alternative. We read this from the Code of Hammurabi. If the finger is pointed at a man's wife about another man, but she is not caught sleeping with the other man, she shall jump into the river for her husband. This phrase, jump into the river, is explained in an earlier part of the Code. If anyone brings an accusation against a man and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river proves that the accused is not guilty and he escapes unhurt, then he who has brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who leaped into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to his accuser. The Code of Hammurabi would have the accused woman commit suicide by drowning. If trials by ordeal are a farce, then how many women died simply by being suspected of adultery with no proof under the Code of Hammurabi? We know for a fact that some husbands are naturally mistrustful of their wives. They make accusations of adultery because they are consumed with a spirit of jealousy. It's in their personality to act this way. And so this trial could be seen as a way of protecting the woman from her mistrusting husband. No longer was she simply thrown into a raging river to see if she survives. Now she simply drinks some water with a curse on it. And then we wait and see. Now there's also the well-documented fact that men in the ancient Near East would accuse their wives of adultery in order to simply get rid of them. Don't like your wife anymore? Well, accuser of adultery, she'll jump into the river and you're free. She's dead. And you become the victim of this hussy who has now regained his honor. This trial protects women from the sword of fate that was all too common. 
Even if this entire act is a sham, it is worth it because it protects the woman from this fate. But with the presence of the holy water, holy dust, and the name of Hashem, I believe that this would have been efficacious. But even if the argument comes up that this was just silly, then yes, it was just silly, and it protected the woman's life from her jealous husband. So now in the flow of the book of Numbers, why is it that this ritual is brought up now? Because the things that Hashem has just done in overturning the honor of many and making it into a shame, taking others to supplant them and give them not just honor, but now gifts, it's this that's going to lead to rebellion in Israel. It is this, among other things, that are going to cause them to turn to other gods and to seek to return to Egypt. And it's this that's going to drive Hashem to jealousy. And when you do, what is it that you can expect? Those who are guilty can expect to be cut off. Not just you, your family, your children, all future generations. This is what you can expect when you cheat on Hashem. And it's this imagery that is repeated all throughout Scripture and throughout the prophets. Israel is the bride of Hashem, and Israel is the unfaithful and idolatrous wife. Last week, we already touched on how Ezekiel mirrors the opening of Numbers. Israel, as they were supposed to be in the image of the four-faced creatures stationed just below the throne of God, those led by the Spirit wherever they went. And then in chapter 2, Ezekiel reveals that Israel is instead rebels, that they have not stayed true to this image. And so Ezekiel is given a scroll and told to eat the scroll, and the taste of the scroll is sweet like honey, like the manna that Israel was fed in the wilderness, and like the Torah that was given to Israel. Psalm 119.103, how sweet to my taste has your word been, more than honey to my mouth. Like the land that Israel was to be given, Exodus 3.8, and I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Mitzrites and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. But that sweet taste turned bitter in Ezekiel, and he's given a curse to speak to the people. And as we continue through the book of Ezekiel, this imagery of the adulterous bride, it's applied to Israel over and over throughout the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sixteen thirteen through 22 Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you were exceedingly beautiful and became fit for royalty. And your name went out among the nations because of your loveliness, for it was perfect by my splendor which I had put on you, declares the Master Hashem. But you trusted in your own loveliness, and you whored because of your name, and you poured out your whorings on everyone passing by who would have it. And you took some of your garments, and you made multicolored high places for yourself and whored on them, which should not have come about, nor shall it be. And you took your splendid adornments of my gold and my silver that I gave you, and you made for yourself images of a male and whored with them. And you took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, and my food which I gave you, fine flour and oil and honey which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, declares the Master Hashem. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed as food to them where your whorings a small matter that you have slain my children and gave them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire. 
and in all your abominations and whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, trampled down in your blood. This passage, it's a grand metaphor. It's a beautiful image, symbolic image. You were a bride fit for royalty, but you hoard with the nations. You hoard with their gods. You took our children and you sacrificed them to other gods. Now in another place, Ezekiel 23, this imagery is brought up again and the same conclusion occurs. Ezekiel 23, the chapter is a bit long and it's kind of graphic. So I'm not going to be reading the whole thing, but I'm going to be reading snippets. But I suggest reading it yourself at some point and considering what it says. Ezekiel 23, 4 through 7. And their names were Ohola, the elder, and Oholava, her sister. And they were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And their names, Samaria is Ohola, and Jerusalem is Oholava. And Ohola whored while she was mine, and she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians, dressed in purple, officers and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. So she gave her whorings on them, all of them choice sons of Assyria, all for whom she lusted, with all their idols she defiled herself. Continuing on in verse 11 through 13, And her sister Aholava saw this, yet she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her whorings more corrupt than her sister's whorings. She lusted for the sons of Assyria, officers and rulers, the ones near, perfectly dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way. Then verse 25 through 27, And I shall set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal heatedly with you. They shall cut off your nose and your ears, while the rest of you fall by the sword. Your sons and your daughters they shall take away, while the rest of you shall be consumed by fire. And they shall strip you of your garments, and shall take your pretty jewels. And I shall put an end to your wickedness and to your whorings from the land of Mitzrayim, so that you do not lift up your eyes to them, neither remember Mitzrayim anymore. And then verse 32 through 34. Thus said the Master Hashem, Drink of your sister's cup, the deep and the wide one, you being laughed at and mocked at, for it holds much. Be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of astonishment and ruin, the cup of your sister Samaria. And you shall drink it, and you shall drain it, and gnaw its shards, and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Master Hashem. Israel, the unfaithful bride, will incur the jealousy of Hashem and will be forced to drink the cup of her sister, a cup that leads to destruction. This is the Israel of the wilderness. This is the Israel of the judges. This is the Israel of both kingdoms. This is the Judah of the time of Messiah. And this is the Israel of the modern church as well as Judaism. This is fickle, rebellious, hard-hearted man. This is our nature. To seek after pleasures wherever we can find them. And to forsake our God when things don't go the way we would like them to go when we don't get the honor that we feel is due to us, when we don't get the comfort or payment, when we get just the bare minimum, 
when others are chosen to supplant us. We look elsewhere for another place which might bring pleasure or comfort or honor. We are the bride who is adulterous. We have been unfaithful to our husband, and we must stand before the judge and drink that cup of bitterness. We must go through the wilderness. You see, this whole ritual, it's a microcosm of the wilderness. All who are faithless were to be cut off and replaced by the faithful. But those who were faithful were to be rewarded in the end with the things that the faithless pined for in the dry land. The rebellious cut off, the faithful rewarded with fruit. And in this we catch a glimpse of the placement of this chapter. It's here that we discover the foundation for all that God does to Israel in the upcoming chapters. The testing, the trials, the hardship, the test of a jealous husband to prove his wife. And Israel failed. But we, the new Israel, we've been given another chance. We've been given a new bridegroom, and he is building for himself a kingdom to be a spotless bride one who will not adulterate herself no matter how difficult it gets, one that will remain faithful regardless of what other suitors might catch her eye. And it's us. We have this opportunity to be the faithful bride, to stay true to our betrothed. This is our charge, and the wilderness, the wilderness is our test. And by staying faithful to our betrothed in the wilderness, we will find life. So seek life. Darashchai in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darashchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.